Thank you for joining us here in our study of Hebrews on the Radio Bible Course. Today we're beginning with verse 5, where the writer to the Hebrews quotes seven Old Testament passages to confirm that Jesus is far superior to any of the angels. Now in verse 5, he writes this, For to what angel did God ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? That is a quotation from Psalm chapter 2, a messianic psalm that talks all about Jesus Christ and his glory someday. This passage refers specifically to his resurrection, not his birth. How do we know that? Because Paul, when he went to Antioch on his first missionary journey, preached in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, and quoted this passage and related it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we don't have to interpret this passage. Paul has done that for us, and Paul was inspired in his interpretation, and we can be sure of it. There are several occasions in the Old Testament where angels are referred to as sons of God, but never as my son. And the writer of Hebrews takes this passage and claims that this shows that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. I suppose some people wonder whether God could have a son. Well, the Old Testament, which was approved by Jesus and endorsed by him, declares that God has a son and that he resurrected him. Psalm 2 is the evidence for it. Now, in the latter part of verse 5, he writes, Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Well, someone might argue, this isn't referring to Jesus. This is referring to a son of David, one of his sons. Now, when we go back to First Chronicles chapter 17 and read the context, we see that Nathan the prophet came to David and declared this to David. Yes, it is talking about one of David's sons, but a very special son. And it doesn't take a very smart person to read the context and to determine that this was not just any ordinary descendant of David of whom Nathan the prophet was speaking. Now listen to what he writes. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And that's the passage that is quoted here by the writer of Hebrews. And, continuing from First Chronicles 17, I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. This is an eternal throne and an eternal kingdom. And who else could this be talking about except an eternal person? Now, this whole chapter is about the covenant that God made with David. 
And we, of course, referred to that as the Davidic covenant. It's an unconditional covenant of what God would do for this man, David. And he here is promising that one of his descendants would be the eternal Christ, who would have an eternal kingdom, and he'll rule over the whole world someday. Now, it's important to recognize that there are conditional covenants which depend upon the behavior of men and unconditional covenants which do not depend upon anything that man does. On what do they depend? Only on the promise of God and his integrity? Then how sure is an unconditional covenant? Just as sure as the word of God. The new covenant which brings us our salvation by grace through faith, is an unconditional covenant. God promised it, and God does it. It's all of God, and therefore it's all of grace. But someone might say, wait a minute. Don't we have to do something? Not do something, only respond. And a response is not a deed. So when we respond by believing that God will do what he promised to do, we have complied with the covenant. We have responded positively. And then the promised blessing of the covenant becomes ours. Well, we move on to verse 6 here, and the writer gives us, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Here he quotes from Psalm 97, verse 7, now, if the angels worship him, obviously he is greater than those who are doing the worshiping. Yes, angels worship Jesus Christ, seated in heaven. He is the Son, and never in the Bible is a single angel called a son. Now, in verse 7, he continues talking about angels and writes, Of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels wins? and his servants flames of fire. And here the writer quotes from Psalm 104, verse 4. The place of angels is to serve. God uses them as winds. And the word for wind is the same as the word for spirit. They are as flames of fire. They are servants. However God chooses to use them, even to appear as men, or to speak through someone else, they are servants. They are seen in the Bible to be somewhat unstable, and God uses them in different ways, but not so for the Son. He is not unstable. He is forever the same. Now we need to take verses 8 and 9 together. But of the Son, he says, and here is the comparison with the angels which he has been discussing, but of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness beyond thy comrades. This is a quotation from Psalm 45, beginning with verse 6. And here he is expressing permanence and stability of the Son. He is the reliable one. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. Now notice the great claim that he makes here in verse 8. He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's speaking about Jesus the Christ, and he calls him God. Now if you ever needed a passage of Scripture to prove that Jesus was God, this is it. He calls him God. The writer sees Jesus seated on the eternal throne as the eternal God, and he exalts him as God, the Messiah of David's family. Now, if this passage is not true, if what the writer to the Hebrews wrote here in verse 8 is not true, then it is blasphemy. The Jews in the New Testament period could appreciate what I just said because Jesus claimed to be more than a man, and they accused him of blasphemy. Where? In John chapter 10. They said, We are not stoning you for any of these things, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And listen to Jesus' answer. Is it not written in your law, I have said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. What about the one whom the Father has set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy, because I said, I am God's Son? Now there Jesus claims, in very clear words, the most emphatic words, that he is God's Son. Not a son like we are sons because we believe in Christ. That's altogether different. He is the unique son, the one who was with the Father in the beginning, the one who is the creator of all things, and the one who is equal to God. He made that claim in a very bold way in John chapter 5, and that chapter is one of the strongest chapters where the equality of Jesus Christ with the Father is proclaimed. Now, returning to verse 8, it talks about the righteous scepter is the scepter of thy kingdom. What is a scepter? It's the symbol of regal authority. It's a staff, symbolic of a ruler. It is not a stick. The soldiers placed a reed in his hand, mocking him before his crucifixion and that was to mock him as one who was holding a scepter. The scepter here speaks of his coming kingdom. He is going to rule, and it belongs to him, and it's a righteous scepter, which means that when that kingdom is established, there will be on this earth righteousness. Now in verse 9, the writer says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And that ties in with that scepter. Jesus will make sure there is righteousness on the earth, and we won't have it until then. Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness beyond thy comrades. What does he mean by comrades? Well, this could refer to the many sons which are mentioned in chapter 2, verse 10, and I read that passage, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. Then again, in verse 11 it says, 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will praise thee. We can't be sure who the comrades are, but I think we have two options there. Either all those who are believers in him and are sons of God, or those who are referred to here as his brethren. And who are they? We are also his brethren. We don't have to be Jews to be it, because we are heirs of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. Is it right to think that Christ will establish righteousness on this earth? The Old Testament declares that that will be the case. Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, Isaiah said. Here's an announcement that will interest you. The Radio Bible Course is giving our listeners a free booklet entitled Great Words of the Bible, Grace. Did you know that it is because of grace that salvation is guaranteed by God? We could have no guarantee if it depended on our efforts. But since salvation rests on grace, which means an undeserved and unearned gift, it can be guaranteed. And it is. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calabota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.org.